going to be in chapter 8, uh, picking up in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 16. This is what the Word of God has to say. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever before of his great, uh, 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 of ever because of his great confidence in you. And for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers for the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Theology matters. It probably matters more than we often give it credit. But theology matters in that um, it is... It is expressed, whether we recognize it or not, in every dynamic of culture, every dynamic of society, in things that you're thinking about and things that you're, you're not thinking about. Today, our culture has a very complicated relationship with leaders and leadership. Today, the most important thing in our culture is the individual Individual rights, preferences, and desires are, have been elevated over the family, over the community, and even over the nation. The theology that underpins this is the assumption that the individual is ultimately good. There's a little good in everybody would be the, the, the phrase that might be said or you could, that somehow the, the, the core of every person is good. Thus, when the culture confronts individual sin, it assumes that the fault of that sin must be external forces because the individual is believed to be good. The word often employed to excuse personal sin is some systematic failure, oppression, or dysfunction of government or society. It's not your fault, it's society's fault, is the, the mantra of the individual. As a result, many who have adopted this worldview lean toward rejecting anything, that li anything limiting individual rights or limiting individual preferences. And this is often accompanied by a rejection of submission to authority. And as a result today, there is open rejection of submission to God, to government, even family, and even church authority. 
Now, the biblical worldview is very different from this. The Bible recognizes that man is sinful. The word that we would use is depraved. You're not good, you're depraved. Your natural bent is toward sin and rebellion. Recognizing the destructive nature of this rebellion, the Bible recognizes the need for rules to be established and rulers to enforce those rules. And the need for oversight of leadership because even leaders are sinful, therefore even leaders are capable of great corruption and sin. In these final verses of chapter 8, Paul gives testimony for these three men that he is sending to the church there at Corinth. Now, Titus had already been there. Uh, he had been there. He had come back. That's how Paul has heard of um, the, 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 the issues that he had written so harshly in previous letters had been dealt with, and that's why he's rejoicing in the previous verses that we've preached. So it's probably Titus has left Corinth, met up with Paul, and now Paul is sending him back to Corinth. And he's sending him back with these two brothers. We don't have their names, but he's sending them back with these brothers. And I think in these verses, we have a helpful teaching on the goodness of leadership and how we as a church and how we as believers in Christ should respond to those that God has given to us that are leading over us. So here are the three things I want us to, to understand out of the passage. One sort of a, a, a practical foundational understanding and then two blessings. So the practical foundational is the blessing of willful leadership. I want to make the case today that those who step up to the call of God to lead are a gift of God to the church. And then two blessings that come from leadership. Number one, the blessing of tests that we ought to be testing those that within the church for their eagerness, their, their earnestness, and their faithfulness, and then the blessing of submission that, and the testimony of submission that what you submit to, and by the way, I'm going to make the case today that you're all submitting to something, that what you submit to is a testimony to what you believe, what you honor, and what you love. Let's begin with the foundational understanding, and that is the blessing of willful Leadership. I see that right in the very opening verses of verse 16 and 17, where, where Paul even says, he gives thanks to the Lord in, in the first few words. He says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. And then in verse 17, he says, and he's coming back to you, not necessarily because I commanded him, but because his own, out of his own accord, his own desire to return to the church and bless the church. Now, here's a foundational truth that we need to wrestle with, and that is that leadership is required in a fallen world. Leadership is required in a fallen world. Uh, you and I have, all of us have a complicated relationship with leadership. On, on one hand, we, we bristle against being told what to do or being limited in what we want to do. If you've ever been frustrated by a speed limit, that's that bristling. You want to do something that a rule has said you cannot do. Maybe uh, last month when you wrote the check that's on, on, to the payee said the Department of Revenue, maybe you bristled a little bit at being told what to do when your money was confiscated from you. And yet on the other hand, we, 
we, we demand that someone be accountable when, when things go wrong or when we need protection and help. And so we appreciate uh, authority and rule on one side, and yet we also bristle at it when it affects our individual rights and preferences on the other side. Authority and the need for leadership is one of the consequences of living in a fallen world. It's one of the consequences of sin. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, so that's before sin entered the world, there's no mention of earthly authority or earthly leadership. The first mention of anyone ruling over another comes in the context of God giving the curse to Adam and Eve. Because of their sin, God cursed them. And that curse, not only to them, but it extends to all of us who were born into sin. And part of that curse came in, in chapter 3, verse 16, where, where God said to Eve that, that a part of the curse of sin that God declared to Eve that her husband would shall rule over her. That's the first mention in Scripture of ruling, authority, submission. Authority and ruling over are needed in a world in rebellion to the will of of God. In a fallen world, it's not enough to make laws. You must also employ law enforcement because of the rebellious nature of man. If the nature of man was not in rebellion, then we could decide on what the appropriate speed limit should be on the interstate. We could put post speed limit sides on the interstate, and then everybody would just drive the speed limit. But that doesn't happen, does it? Oh, maybe you've not been on the interstate lately. It doesn't happen. In fact, if you want people to drive the speed limit, then you also must employ those whose job it is to enforce the law. What do we call those policemen that are in, in, in involved in that work? We call them law enforcement. They're forcing rebellious people to respond to the laws and dictates of the government. In a fallen world, we need authority and leadership. But this also means that authority and leadership are also oftentimes dysfunctional and can even be uh, abusive. Because we live in a fallen world, both sides struggle. So people struggle with pushing back against the laws, and even the rulers deal, uh, struggle with sinful use of leadership. Wicked, uh, uh, the two types of dysfunctional leadership that, I, that at least I see. The first would be wicked or abusive leadership. This would be the use of power and authority to harm those who are under, their, under the, their leadership and authority. And then the second one, and I think this is one that we need to be a, a very keen aware of in the, in the context of the church, and that would be the abdication or disinterested in leadership or in leading. Abdication would be those who are in authority and have the power to act but will not or do not. And disinterest are those who are gifted with leadership ability but will not lead because of the personal cost they may endure. They're more interested in self-preservation than service. And friends, when you have disinterested or abdicating leadership, that makes the, uh, paves the road for the first, the wicked and abusive type of leadership. Here's the point. Wherever you are in a fallen world, someone is always leading. There, has, there, uh, there, there, there had been challenges to Paul's authority in the Corinthian church amongst the membership there. Now, the challenge to Paul's authority was not a move to have no leadership. It was a move to supplant his leadership with the, those who were challenging him with their leadership. 
Now the question for the church cannot be, is there leadership or ruling authority? That's, in a fallen world, there must be leadership, there must be authority. There will always be someone setting the direction, determining what is allowed or rejected, and defining what is honorable and sacrificed for. The question for the church must be, what is the biblically correct authority? Who should be in authority? How should that authority be responded to? And that's why I think it's interesting how Paul begins his, his, um, his affirmation of Titus to the church. He recognizes that, that, that Titus is willingly participating in leading the church. Because Paul recognizes that faithful leadership is a gift of God. It is a good blessing. Listen to me carefully. It is a good blessing when leaders lead. Paul recognizes it as a gift of God that Titus desires to return to Corinth. In verse 17, Paul indicates that Titus had been asked to return to Corinth, but that his decision to return was motivated not because Paul was demanding it, but he was himself motivated to come because of his own earnest and his own love for the church. Now, it would not have been inappropriate for Paul to command it. It would not have been inappropriate for Paul to command the church to receive him. But on both accounts here, you'll see that Paul is, is celebrating that Titus is going out of his own desire. In the last verse of the chapter, Paul is encouraging the church to receive him out of their own desire. Paul makes clear that, that Titus is coming out of his own accord and encouraged the church to receive him willingly. The willing participation of Titus going to the church and the willingness of the church to receive him was, was important because only in willing obedience would the church recognize the grace of God through the leadership of Titus. Now listen to this carefully. When you submit to authority out of compulsion, it squelches your ability to be thankful and to see how God is providing for you. It opens the door for the dangerous sin of grumbling. And because we understand that grumbling is the outward sign of inward rebellion. Grumbling is there when you're doing something externally, but your heart's not there internally. You're performing some task because you have to, but you're not performing it because you desire or want to. That's why Paul does not command Titus to return, and it's why he's not giving an ultimatum to the church to receive him. He wants the church to receive him willingly. He is celebrating that Titus is returning willingly because when God called and God gifted leaders willingly lead and when the church willingly submits to this leadership, it opens the door wide for the church to see God's grace and provision and to be thankful for how he has provided for them. Now, I'm, I'm gonna just press this a little bit, church. We like to look at the world around us and separate them from us. Well, they are behaving that way. They're acting that way. But friends, when's the last time in the context of church leadership you've been thankful for those that God's put in authority over you? Or when's the last time you've grumbled about having to do something that you were asked to do? Paul is celebrating that Titus is going back willingly. And we don't have time for it, but there had been some struggles there with Titus and the church, in part because he goes back to a church that had rejected him and, and Paul. But he's celebrating that Titus is going back willingly, and he's, he's encouraging the church to receive him and these two other brothers willingly. 
so that they can see how God is providing for them through the leadership that God has raised up. There is blessing in willful leadership. But then Paul moves his attention to these two other brothers that he's sending. And I think with these two men, we can see the testimony of tests that ought to be a part of the life of the church. Now, taking them separately, the first we see in verse 19, the affirmation of the church for a brother that was very well known. In verse 18 and 19, Paul writes about this first brother where he says, With him we are sending the brother who is famous among the church, all the churches, for his preaching of the gospel. And this is, I think, the more important verse. Uh, in verse 19, he says, And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. So in verse 18, Paul indicates that, that along with Titus, two brothers are coming along with him. Now, we don't know these men's name, and we don't know anything about them other than the testimony that Paul gives us in these brief verses. Now, what we can appreciate about them is where they were as far as in the leadership of the church. Now, we know of Titus that he was an elder in the church, and we, we get that in part because when, when Paul writes his letter to Titus, he is instructing him to appoint elders that would serve in his place in the church. The phrase that is referenced of these two men is adelphos, which simply means brother. It was a term that was used for fellow believers in Christ. So brother and sister, we still use that word today. In the context of the New Testament church, there were elders. Sometimes they refer to, I mean, pastor, elder, bishop sometimes, but very rarely, um, presbytery. All of those were the, the authority because they were, they, their primary responsibility was the preaching and the teaching of the word. Then you had deacons who were the servants of the church doing logistical work and, and the, the logistics and, 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 and service ministry of the church. And then, of course, you had the congregation, the brothers and sisters. So apparently these two men were part of the congregation. They were brothers in the church. But, but notice that as these men are, are named as brother, the, uh, the, 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 um, that, that, that was not a distinction of diminish, diminishment. It was a recognition of these men were faithful workers in the context of the ministry of the larger church. But notice, for these men, what was most important was not that Paul knew them or liked them, it was not that they were well-known, and it was not that they had done great things. That's why I say verse 19 is, is the more important than verse 18. Because the most important attribute of particularly this first man who was well-known amongst the churches, Paul declares is that he had received the affirmation of the church. Notice with his words about the first brother that he says he is well known for his preaching. But then he says in verse 19, but not only this, but he has been appointed by the churches. That word appointed means to be chosen or select, generally by a group, probably here in the context of the assembly of the church, to, to choose to, to elect or to select, to set apart for some particular work. Now, this is not to take away from his preaching, but Paul recognizes that the confirmation is more important than the recognition. Now, here's the important part. 
It is better to be confirmed by those who know you than to be affirmed by those who don't. I want to say that again. It is better to be confirmed by those who know you than affirmed by those who don't. The popular preacher's credentials were not only his preaching ability. Clearly, he was able to preach the gospel but more so the appointment of the churches who had personal knowledge of his character and his faithfulness to the word of God. I'm 48 years old, so I grew up in the church of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I grew up in a church context where many sought a career out of performing for the church. During the 70s, 80s, and 90s, whole industries of Christian entertainment grew up. So the CCM, Christian music, uh, contemporary Christian music, and the uh, associated record labels, and Dove Awards, and all those things, and, and, and performers who made their living doing concerts, that all grew up during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Today, you have folks that go well beyond just music. So comedians and, and movie makers and all the rest, that their target audience is the Christian church. Now, as these industries, industries grew, as well as the popularity of the performers, the connection between the local church who knew them grew thinner and thinner and thinner. Now, don't misunderstand me. I... I, 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 I don't think that God can't use performers and those who have great mass appeal to the Christian church to be a good gift to the church and helpful to the church. But if you've been paying attention in recent years, there's been a heartbreaking reality of those who had great popularity in the Christian industry but were later discovered to be bankrupt theologically and doctrinally. It's brought great damage to the church. And friends, I... I think that is a result of separating those who entertain the church from those who are a part of the church. In other words, we were happy to celebrate someone who was well-known without, without ever asking, is there a body of believers who knows you who can attest for your faithfulness? We were, we were happy to welcome people in because they had great mass appeal without ever asking, is anybody in your life that can testify to your faithfulness, to your knowledge of the Word, to your faithfulness to true doctrine, or are we just relying on the, the mass appeal that you can draw a crowd? That's why I say it's better to be confirmed by those who know you than affirmed by those who don't. Friends, in the context of a local fellowship, there ought to be a testimony for you that even as you go, and even if God uses you in great and mighty ways far beyond the local fellowship, you don't get so far from those who know you that, 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 that your testimony is damaged because there's nobody who can attest to your faithfulness. And then the second brother is interesting too. In verse 22, Paul says something interesting about him. In verse 22, and he says, And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest with many matters, but who now is more earnest than ever, ever because of his great confidence in you. When Paul wrote about the second brother he was sending with Titus, he, he said of him that he, had, that he had often been tested and been found earnest in many ways. The word that, that Paul uses in verse 22 is that's translated as tested 
It, it literally means to, to try to learn the genuineness of something. To prove something as genuine and true requires that you test it, that you put it through some type of testing to see if it really is what it purports to be. Paul's testimony was founded on the brother being often, in his words, often tested and found to be earnest in many matters. In an effort to, not, uh, to, uh, to offend and to protect the, the, the modern fragile self-esteem, the church has often affirmed what has not been tested. Sometimes we affirm folks who we just like but have not been tested. Sometimes we affirm folks just because we don't want to hurt their feelings, but they've not been tested. Now, at first, this may seem like a very, not a very big deal. We are from the South, after all, and we've been taught from birth that we're not to say anything ugly to anybody, right? Because your mama, like my mama said, if you can't say something nice, what? Don't say anything at all. All right, our mama's talked. That's good to hear. What does it hurt to be nice? What does it hurt not to point out deficiency or lack? If the issue is non-consequential, then I don't think it matters. <laughs> the church has a long history of being more gracious than honest to those who enjoy singing but can't sing. We've all been in those rooms where somebody loved to sing, and God bless them, they could not carry a bucket, if, uh, tune in a bucket if, if they had help. But what did we do? We sat in the congregation and we smiled at them and said, bless your heart, that was a song when they got done. Now, that's inconsequential. Does it matter if they can't sing? No, and that's certainly appropriate for us to be kind and gracious in those moments. However, if the issue is a matter of theology or doctrine, it is a matter of eternal life and death and the well-being of the church. You, you do notice in every other area of our life, the more consequential, the more important, the more dangerous something is, the more uh, particular we want tests to be. My airline pilot... I want to make sure he knows how to fly an airplane. I had a friend of mine who was an airline pilot one time, and we were talking about how modern planes essentially fly themselves. And he, he jokingly said, but I think there was some real truth in this. He said, you know, I only work about 15 minutes a month. I thought, you're getting paid pretty good for 15 minutes a month, brother. He said, listen, those planes, they fly themselves. They do almost everything for them. He said, but every now and then, because it's mechanical, because of life, everything goes wrong and the computer can't work. And he says, you pay me the big dollars because that 15 minute matters. And when everything's going wrong, don't you want to know that the guy up front or the, a woman up front knows how to fly the plane? When you go in for heart surgery, don't you want to make sure that your, that your heart surgeon actually knows how to do surgery, not just as somebody who likes the idea of it? The more consequential, the more dangerous, the more significant something is, the more test we want so that we know that who is doing it knows what they're doing. Dear friends, if you're handling the Word of God, what is the very life and death for eternity, don't you want to make sure that those who are preaching it and ministering it know it? It matters. Test and approve. The two important tests for those and the church is the faithfulness to the word and the faithfulness to endure. The primary testimony of any brother or sister of the church who gives testimony, uh, for, for, that we give testimony for must be their fidelity to the word of God. When you speak for a brother and sister in Christ, you can talk about how nice they are and those sort of things, but your primary testimony ought to be, I can attest they know the word, they faithfully teach it or preach it. 
But second to this is their faithfulness to endure even when difficult times come. One of the most destructive and demoralizing things that can happen to the church is when a leader or someone who's been put into a significant ministry position abandons their post when difficulty moments come. The church must test those who are entrusted with the word and with the ministry that they are both faithful to the word and are able to endure in difficulty. Friends, difficult times come. That's just part of living in a fallen world. And those who are entrusted with the ministry of the church, yes, need to be faithful to the word and yes, must be tested and shown to be able to endure when difficult moments come. Paul encouraged the good gift of leadership. He talked about the testimony of test for these two brothers that he's sending along with Titus. But in the final verses of this chapter, I think he gives a word about the testimony of submission. Look with me in verse 23. He says, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the church, churches, the glory of Christ. And then his, his, this is his appeal to the church. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. In other words, receive them. Receive them. It's his appeal. Testimony of submission. Two things here. Number one, dear friends, you must first, of primary concern, submit yourself to the Word of God. In the final two verses of chapter 8, Paul gives a final word of, about Titus and the two brothers traveling with him and encourages the church to receive them. Notice the attribute Paul assigns to each and the request for the church. To, to Titus, he says, he is a fellow partner for the blessing or the benefit of the church. For the brothers, he says, they are messengers of the, for, of the church, the glory of Christ. The, 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 to the Corinthian church, he says, he, he wants them to, to affirm their love and, their, and Paul's boasting in them. I believe all three of these point to the word of God. Let me explain how. Paul and Titus had given their lives to the building, to the growing, to the blessing to the, of faithful congregations of believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These two men had given themselves to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And the church was encouraged to give proof of their love. Now, what does Paul mean by love? Well, I think what he's saying is give proof of your love of these things that we, that Paul and Titus had devoted themselves to, that these two brothers had given their life to. Prove your love of the gospel. Prove your love of, the, uh, of hearing the gospel. Prove your love of the other saints. Prove your love of those that God has given to preach and to teach and to lead the church. Now, Paul was not demanding special honor for him or for Titus. Paul does not, celebrate, does not celebrate those brothers for worldly abilities or traits. He is not um, demanding devotion or loyalty of the church to him personally, but to the truth of Christ. 
The elders of the church, first responsibility was the ministry of the word. And, and I think Paul is connecting here. The church is submitting to Titus and by connection submitting to him to submitting to the gospel that Paul had preached. You see, there were some there that were trying to teach a different gospel who were saying, Paul was wrong, let's go another direction. And so when Paul says, receive Timothy, I mean, receive Titus as, as you would receive me, love Titus as you would love me, love the word that I have preached among you. Godly leaders call the church first and foremost to submit to the word of God. And friends, I believe that your testimony, my testimony, uh, your submission and my submission is a testimony to what we love and what we honor. In fact, I would say it this way, your, your submission is a testimony in and of itself. As I was preparing my notes for you this week, I really struggled with the word submission because I'm keenly aware of how uncomfortable it makes the modern hearer. We just frankly don't like it. It connects with us something, it connects with us the diminishment of our individual rights and preferences and because we are people of our time, it makes us very, very uncomfortable. But here's the truth. Every one of you is submissive to something. You may say, oh, no, I'm not. I, I'm my own person. I do whatever I want to. Well, fine, you're submissive to the idol of self, but you are submissive to something. You testify to what you submit to by what you honor, by what you love, by what you believe. When there's church conflict, it's an issue of submission. When there's unconfessed sin, it's an issue of submission. There's always a temptation to submit to the desire of man. When you submit to the desire of man, you ignore sin. You disobey the commands of Christ. You allow the demands of culture to have more influence than the word of God. The submission of the church and of every believer must testify to the glory of God and the authority of God's word. The church's testimony must declare God's glory and not man's desire. Every now and then, someone will say something out loud and reveal what they are thinking. And as they do, they expose more of their heart than I think they actually intended. Such a comment allowed me in my very first church to see firsthand the conflict between the desire of man and submission to the word of God. I was pastoring my first church out of seminary, my first, first full-time pastoral role. And I was in a meeting with our church leadership and the issue that was being discussed dealt with a sin that many in the church struggled with. I was aware of that, and I think most of the men in the room were aware of that as well. And as a result of that, there was no agreement amongst the leaders as to what the church should do. In my naivete, I was confident that faithful biblical preaching and teaching would, would resolve the issue. You just needed to explain what the Bible said and 
that would be enough. And so I attempted to do that. And, and as, as part of that, I, uh, I asked the question, what does the Bible say on this issue? And how can our church respond biblically to what we're wrestling with in a way that conforms with and submits to the Word of God? And it was at this point that one of the men in the room uttered a sentence that for the rest of my life, I'll never forget. He was likely frustrated that I was encouraging the church to do things that he opposed. So when I asked those men to reflect on what the Bible taught, it triggered in him to speak these words. He said, I don't care what the Bible says. This is what we're going to do. Now, when he spoke those words, the room grew pretty quiet. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't know what to do as a pastor. What do you do when leadership says, I don't care what the Bible says, this is what we're going to do. I knew then what had been revealed, that the struggle wasn't really about what the Bible taught. I think in the room, most of them understood pretty clearly what the Bible taught. The question was, what was going to win the day? Was the desire of man going to rule or was the word of God going to rule? Friends, that's why I say to you, you are submitting to something. And what you submit to is your testimony. Oh, it's easy to shout amen and, 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 and hoop and holler at the preaching when whatever's being said from the pulpit you like. But when it gets deathly quiet because the preaching gets too close to your personal sin, when the Word of God exposes areas in your life that are contrary or rebel in rebellion to what God demands, that's where the issue comes. Will you submit to the Word of God? Or will you surrender your life and submit? Will you submit to the, to the desire of man or will you submit to the Word of God? Friends, in the context of living out our faith, God gives us leadership to point us to, to, to draw us to, to, to lead us into being faithful. We need to test and approve those that are preaching and teaching for their faithfulness, and we need to bear a testimony in what we submit to. Believe God's word, love the Lord, and let the testimony of your life Bear witness. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. 
For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.